0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Panda Pod, NDRN's podcast all about protecting the rights of people with disabilities. I am Justine Justice Shorter, Disaster Protection Advisor here at NDRN. That means that everything I do focuses on disasters, fires, humanitarian crises, and other types of emergencies. And today, I am joined here by the magical Michelle. Michelle, how you doing? I don't know how to follow that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the magical Michelle, I like that. You never want to go Come on, your job
0: sounds so, so important. That was amazing. Listen, come on, talk to me about that, Papa. Papa, Java. <laughs>
1: This
2: is Michelle Bishop, voting rights specialist here at NDRN. I work on elections. I, there's nothing else. I don't have to hype that up. It's 2020. Yes, it speaks for itself.
0: Oh, okay. That sounds like a jab. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to come at you a little bit later with that. But, yeah. a jab. Let's give it to Erica.
1: <laughs> Thank you, ladies. No worries. My name is Erica Hudson. I'm public policy analyst here at NDRN, focusing on census, which is the core of our podcast today. And if you listen
2: to our first episode, you know it's now called The Big C. Absolutely. Apparently. Coined by me. You
1: know. Well, you yes. know, I I don't, don't, no it. one else actually says
2: that. Fortunately,
1: on today's episode of Disability, Disaster, and Democracy, we will be focusing on Census data and how it impacts emergency preparedness and disaster preparedness. Ladies, you all know Census 2020
0: mm-hmm. is, is coming. The Census is coming.
1: The Census. May the odds be ever in our
0: favor. no. Mm-hmm.
2: There was so many mixed metaphors. I <laughs> there's a lot going on. Yeah, it was here. like a
0: movie trailer. There was some Hunger Games stuff in there, but that's a little how we bit of
2: Game of Thrones, a little bit of Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Very
1: confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, it's making sense to sound a little bit scary. But you know, it does just make sense to talk about the census, doesn't it? That's <laughs>
2: they don't call Erica the queen of the pun for nothing. That's Absolutely. what I'm saying. Yeah.
1: Well, ladies, before we get started, I need to run by some census stats here. Are you all oh, ready? On this is hey, the Stack I'm up probably, those stats. Okay. I'm probably not ready for the census. As as
0: I am st- ready for you to stack those stats. Like
1: pancakes up in here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: don't
1: know. <laughs> not, I really love pancakes, but nonetheless, pancakes this, do sound really good. They do. Okay, I mean, let's I, talk about census. Yeah. Well, census on a series No, it is mandated by the Constitution. It's in Article One, Section Two, and it's federally mandated that we count every single person in the United States every ten years. Whether or not they're a citizen? That is correct. Every single person in the United States is counted through our decennial census. That happens every 10 years good to know right Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of folks are familiar with what census data does which is helps with apportionment of the seats in the u.s house of representatives it helps figure out how many representatives each state gets that's why we see california have a lot more than perhaps Wyoming? Yes. Or Vermont? <laughs> Vermont, all mm. these different states we can think of, right? That's mm. why the census data is so important. It changes every 10 years after we get our data. Did y'all mm. know that?
0: Apologies to the state of Wyoming. <laughs> well, it's this dead. is important because also, you know, populations change. Guess when? When disasters strike. Oh, I you know, see
1: what you did there. Brought oh, it full circle. Oh, oh, yes. Into yeah. our oh. series. on fire on I do
2: those things. I love Ooh,
1: it. it. But also something that we've talked about is that census data helps determine how billions of dollars in federal funding gets distributed to states every year, and that all comes through census data. So if you're undercounted, you're underfunded. Exactly. And that's why it's so important to say, count me in as we approach 2020 census. And also so important for the disability community to say, we count and that we have a voice in our democracy.
2: And probably also why we don't use winter is coming as a catchphrase for the census, because we actually need people
0: to do it and not be afraid of it. Exactly. That's another Game of Thrones reference that I don't get, and do um, <laughs> Game of Thrones? I'm that is
1: a Game sure. of Thrones. Oh, so Justice in sure.
0: the Census is
2: coming at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, wow. I, I just did
0: that off a of movie. Nobody else thing. watches
2: Game of Thrones. No, all mm-hmm. right, okay. I'll just sit over here. No, we'll just, just, do, just
1: We feel, yeah,
2: yeah. We'll just continue on. Yeah, please. Yeah. But <laughs> that is
1: why it's so important, and something that I didn't know until recently is that census data produces timely local data that is crucial for emergency planning. I did not know that until Justice, our disaster preparedness and emergency preparedness, all things preparedness disaster, told me.
0: Yeah, no,
2: it's, it's I thought you almost okay. called her our fearless disaster leader, which <laughs> sounds like something else entirely.
0: No, it, it, it definitely sounds more scary and then and, and I'm not um too inclined to to be associated with scary things because disasters are scary enough in and of themselves, right? right? They are very unpredictable. Um things can be very chaotic sometimes you can feel as if you have no control because of the, despite what many of us want or sometimes what some folks believe. We can't control the weather um, necessarily, but we can do things around climate change. And that's a totally different episode. But it's I really- I like how you them, though. Yeah, yeah. But there's there's just so many different things to think about when it comes to this. And I think that's why the, the census is so important because we're trying to make sure that people are counted. It, it This is really important in particular for the disability community who has historically been invisibilized, right? Mm-hmm. And so the census is all about making sure that people are seeing, that they're heard, that they're counted, that they're included. Um, so that more equitable decisions can be made in terms of who represents them, right, in right. Congress and who, and who makes decisions on their behalf, which, of course, is, can be connected to really big issues like health care, um, like their overall rights to vote, like their rights to participate and mm-hmm. just a number of different daily freedoms that we've all come to enjoy on a
1: day-to-day basis. Absolutely. It's really central. Well, it's a beautiful thing. Everyone has opportunity to say, I'm here I want to be here, I'm counted, you know, that's rare, I think, in today's world, that everyone is, in fact, included in this process, and that's what the census does, and that's why it's in our Constitution, right? That's why they say every single person will be counted every 10 years, so.
2: Good to know. Right? Well, we have some good stuff coming up today. (laughs) Yes, today we're going to be joined by Denise Ross, who's a fellow in residence at Georgetown University, where she works on issues related to disaster, census, climate change, and many more issues, but today we're going to be learning from her about the census and how it relates to emergency and disaster preparedness. Denise, come on down.
3: Hi there, I'm Denise Ross and I'm a senior fellow with the National Conference on Citizenship and also a fellow with the Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University.
1: Excellent, and Denise, thank you for being on the Planda Pod today. Um, I was really excited to have you join us, as I heard you speak at a conference that we were both at. I think back in December of mm-hmm. 2019, and you discussed the <laughs> a month ago. <to> in- <laughs> <laughs> it was last year. In- You know, uh, at a census meeting. And you uh, mentioned how census data played a role in the relief of uh, Hurricane Katrina. And that was the first time I put the pieces together why census data is so important, not only for federal funding of the programs that I think we think of every day, but for disaster relief and emergency preparedness. So I would love for you to chat about why census data is so important for all of that.
3: Yes, thank you. And this is one of my favorite topics, so it's really an honor to um, to be on the podcast. And uh, just so for a little background, I uh, was in New Orleans. I moved there after Census 2000 was released, um, and there was this great opportunity to democratize these federal data so that rather than being used by decision makers behind closed doors to make decisions about communities, there was this possibility that the data might be easier for folks to access, so that communities could use the data to advocate on behalf of their own destinies. And so that's that's what I was doing um, before Katrina happened. Katrina happened in two thousand five, and um, and when it when it when when Katrina uh, flooded eighty percent of the city after the federal infrastructure failed, the uh, the data that that the census had. Collected about the city became instantly historical, and so we were really flying blind in the recovery. And it made me, um, it made me realize how much I'd been taking census data for granted. Um, and uh, and so ever ever since then, um, I, I vowed I would never take census data for granted again. And of course, with the 2020 census coming up, um, which the census day is April 1st, 2020. Um, it, it's uh, really front and center in any advocacy community right now, making sure that everybody is counted um, for disaster preparedness. Every time you see that there's a fire or a hurricane or an earthquake, um, there's there's usually an area that's impacted and some severity associated with that impact. But the way the way that we make meaning out of that is knowing who who are the people, how many people are affected. Um, and what, what are their demographics, um, and, and how um, you know, and what's the intersection of the disaster and the population, and that's that's the role that census data plays. Um, if if you could indulge me, I'd love to give a little bit of a um, an overview of the census data products as they relate to disasters and disabilities. That'd be great. Okay. Um, so the the um, the first is the twenty twenty the the decennial count. Um, and that's just a really basic questionnaire. I think there's only like nine or 10 questions. And that just covers sex, age, number of people in household, race or Hispanic origin, um, owner, or renter. Um, and that data is available. Um, it's really good data because it's a count of all the people and it's available at the block level. Um, so you get great geographic granularity, which is important for disasters because think about how a tornado works, right? It just can cut a swath just a few blocks wide, um, and we need data about the people who are impacted by that disaster at the small geographic area. Now, um, the uh, every and and because the decennial census, by definition, is just every is every ten years. The Census Bureau fills the gaps with these annual population estimates, and there they basically take the base number from the decennial count, um, add births, subtract deaths, and then account for net migration of people moving in or out of the geographic area. Um, but the really interesting data that we use for disasters and emergency planning is the, from the American Community Survey. And that's a sample, um, and it gives you great information on access to a vehicle, what languages are spoken in the home, whether people have health insurance. Um, It it has specific questions about disabilities, including vision and hearing impairments, mental health and cognitive disabilities, mobility challenges, whether people can uh, perform activities of daily living, do they need assistance for running errands. Um, and do do they have a, a service connected disability as a veteran? Um, that that type of thing. And then lastly, um, there's there's the Census uh, Bureau uh, collaborates with the with HUD, the Housing and Urban Development Agency, to conduct the American Housing Survey, which has great data on accessibility of the home for people with disabilities. Um, and why that's relevant is because the cost to rehab a home that 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 has that was made accessible before a disaster, the cost to rehab it is going to be higher. So those are the four main data sets um, that that the Census Bureau produces that are really um, essential for planning for uh, emergencies and disasters.
0: And let me just uh, also pivot back once more to ask about disaster housing. You mentioned that a few moments ago, and it is the issue that I constantly come into contact with from one disaster to another. It does Mm -hmm. not matter uh, where it is around the country or in the territories, Uh, the disaster. I, I constantly come into contact with this issue, the lack, the shortage of affordable, accessible, available housing. Can you just elaborate a little bit more about uh, kind of the American Community Survey, the information that it collects around housing you mentioned here around um, whether or not a home was accessible uh, and and, and what that looks like, but then also kind of thinking about that uh, after a disaster and how much it costs to rehab a home and make it accessible, we see in the field often that um, the goal is to get a home to be back to its pre-disaster standard, right? And so the the question or the, the concern that many disaster survivors with disabilities have is, hey, if my wooden steps were washed out and I could barely use my wooden steps if I have a mobility disability, um, then can we make some arrangements here so that I could have a ramp in place as opposed <laughs> to just building the steps back? Can I get a wooden ramp as opposed yes. to these wooden steps? Because it makes no <laughs> sense to build it back to that pre-disaster standard if it wasn't accessible to begin with, but we can keep in alignment with this whole idea of building back better yeah. in a way that's more conducive to communities and to individuals. So I just wanted you to expand a bit on that concept.
3: Yeah, there is a great opportunity here for um, evidence-based advocacy to change the policies. Um, and so I think there there would be um, sort of two avenues that I'd pursue. And, and one is this, um, you know, allowing to build back better. Um, if if your needs weren't being met in the home that you were in, um, can you build back so that the home is accessible after the disaster? Um, the, the second thing is just making sure that the maximum limits for, um, for uh, housing support after a disaster, that people with disabilities who require a- accessibility modifications to their home have a higher limit um, so that they can replace the ramp and replace, um, you know, all of the the, uh, accessibility they might've had inside the home.
1: Denise, that's great. Thank you so much for kind of tying that all together. That's really helpful. And a lot of information that I did not know. And I really like how you said uh, build better, you know, and that's something we can take away after disaster strikes. And I want to tie something back into what you said earlier in the podcast. Um, You mentioned Hurricane Katrina. And I think in today's day and age, We see that more and more uh, with different disasters going on, you know, whether that's Hurricane Maria or the wildfires in California. Um, So I'm curious, what does the Census Bureau do after disaster strikes? And you tied in kind of why the data is so important. But during that rebuilding phase, I think of California and how so many people had to move out of that area following the fires. And I imagine those numbers are going to be vastly different now in 2020 than they were during the decennial in 2010. Um, so I wonder if that has any impact, and I'm curious to see um, if you have any thoughts on that.
3: Disasters definitely impact data collection, yeah. and um, and and it's tricky because it's really a chicken and egg thing, um, because in order to be in place and back in your home after a disaster, you need certain services, right? You need a complete community around you, but that complete community won't be established until there's a demonstrated need for those services. So um, I remember after Katrina, the most common response to these types of conundrums was, it's a chicken and egg problem. So let me, I I can explain that a little bit um, by just describing how the Census Bureau handles um, it's when they go go into a post-disaster situation. So the, the Bureau is committed to counting every person in the United States uh, once, only once, but in the right place. And the way they define the right place is by um, what they, they call your usual residence. And that's where you live and sleep most of the time. People who are displaced by a disaster don't have a usual residence mm-hmm. um, that, you know, that that's, uh, that's where it used to be. And so that's that's tricky. They get counted um, where they wherever they are staying, whether it's a shelter or with a family member, which may be outside of the um, the area where they were living before the disaster. So after Katrina, I evacuated to Phoenix, and I was there for six months because um, we didn't have power. And um, and so if the census count had happened at that time, my usual residence would have been Phoenix, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with, with that said, the, um, the, the Bureau does what they do after a disaster. Um, if, when, if there's a, a decennial count coming up is um, this time around, for example, for um, Puerto Rico and Paradise, California and Mexico, Mexico Beach, Florida, they're leaving forms door to door. They're also using I, um, iPhones to update addresses so that they they know which, which buildings are gone, where where did new buildings go up, just to make sure they have a really good address file. Um, and most importantly, they're checking nearby shelters, temporary housing, and trailer parks. Um, but the, the trick there, of course, is that if the census counts are used to determine what services need to be put into place in a particular area, how many dialysis clinics do you need, Um, you know, what type of special education services do you need in your schools. If people can't move back because those services aren't in place, then they aren't counted when it comes time to determine the need for those services.
0: Denise, I want to pick up on something that you said there. Uh, you mentioned power, and of course, our minds as individuals who work with people with disabilities go immediately to folks who are electricity dependent. Can you speak to us about another form of data collection uh, around ensuring that individuals with the disabilities have access to electricity? Can you talk to us about empower and tell folks what that is?
3: Yes, absolutely. So the um when you're talking about data and disasters and especially the intersection with disabilities, um, the, the data that's provided by the census is population-level data. So you can use that to figure out you know, where should we send the evacuation buses um, and maybe how many you know, wheelchair-accessible buses do we need. But you can't use census data to, to knock on the door of somebody who needs help evacuating. It's not individual-level data. Now, what's great about administrative data that that local or federal government might have, or different nonprofit providers, is that um, that has data about individuals and their needs. And one um, really nice example of this is the Empower program out of the Department of Health and Human Services. It's E M Power, Empower, um, M-power, and they have data from um, Medicare on people who are dependent on. Um, durable medical devices, so ventilators, for example, and they have this fantastic map where you can look down to the zip code level at um, who in your community at at the counts of people who are dependent on on durable medical equipment and and uh, would need assistance if there was a power outage. Um, now, that's not enough to to rescue the individual; it's enough to um, to put in place resources to help that population. Uh, Where the really powerful connection comes in is that when a disaster is declared, HHS can share the individual level data with the local health department, and then the local health department can reach out to those people who need help when the power goes out.
0: Yeah, it's such a vital resource. I have been deployed to disasters where folks have used that data from Empower uh, versus uh, information that has come from other data collection sources, primarily because as I asked in the beginning, kind of the rate of response amongst individuals with disabilities, perhaps those numbers were significantly lower or out of date and uh, were not necessarily applicable to the situation at hand. And to your point, when one is trying to provide evidence-based advocacy, it's difficult to do that when you are interacting with folks, and you can clearly make the connection that there are people with disabilities here, but the numbers don't bear that out. Mm -hmm. And when you are in rooms trying to advocate for additional resource allocation and service delivery, it really does help to have a multitude of tools to have at your disposal to say, hey, people with disabilities are here and there are clear defined needs here. Um, but then also bear in mind that people with disabilities, just as the the general population does as well, move. They move around either because they're displaced by disaster or because it is their own desire just to move to a different neighborhood. So we have to just be aware that if you're going to have a hundred or several hundred, several thousand folks um, in a particular area, you can bet that the uh, Probably about twenty-five percent or so of those, on average, perhaps could have a disability or an access and functional need. So we have to be mindful of that uh, when advocating to disaster leaders.
3: Absolutely, yeah, and it, and it certainly, um, you know, from my perspective, um, everybody working in a manage, in in emergency management should be a disability advocate, um, and every disability advocate should also be somewhat of a somewhat data savvy. Um, so that, that they can tell more effective stories and make the case. And knowing knowing what data are available, um, both from the official um, statistical agencies like the Census Bureau, and also administrative data sets that you or your local government might have access to.
2: I'm sorry, disaster professionals should be disability advocates. That was just one more time for the cheap seats in the back. <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> also wanted to ask you another question here, Denise can you talk about the distinction between registries and census and Mm -hmm. the American Community Survey? And I ask this because sometimes registries uh, have been seen to be somewhat of a controversial issue uh, to varying degrees, depending on who you ask and kind of where in the country or in the territories you're asking that question. But I want to bring this up specifically as it relates to linkages to certain uh, marginalized populations uh, that intersect with disability. Uh, For example, um, individuals who um, may be uh, of immigrant status or perhaps do not uh, have legal status here in the country, um, but who also have critical needs and need specific assistance or perhaps services that are available to the public, but are not making themselves known because they don't want to be on any Particular list, or they don't want to have their names or information um, associated with any uh, particular registry of some sort. But then also individuals who are um, who have not had the best. Uh, relationship or history um, with law enforcement. And I only bring up law enforcement because in some counties, especially small rural areas, and I've traveled all across the country and I've met with first responders who are fire and EMS folks, but who also share their data and their information with law enforcement. And so that could sometimes serve as a deterrent for some communities who have not had the best experience. I'm thinking black and brown communities in particular um, with law enforcement and just don't want their names on the list if they have a mental health consideration or additional concerns uh, that they just don't want people to know ahead of time. But could you just give us a, a bit more information on your thoughts uh, as it relates to registries, as well as the American Community Survey and the census when we talk about data and the assistance available to certain marginalized communities in particular?
3: I'm so glad you asked that, um, because that... Uh... That's really the frontier for the conversations that we need to be happening. Um, and first, just to be super explicit, the census is not a registry. Um, mm-hmm. And the only data, so they collect individual data, but they only publish summaries of that data. So you cannot be individually identified. And the Census Bureau is prohibited by law from sharing any individual level data with law enforcement or anyone else now that's that's good and um, so they will not share it with the police department. They also will not share it with the fire department who might be coming to help you if the power goes out. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's why there's um, that's why it takes a full complement of data to really provide the type of supports that communities need when a disaster happens. Um, So the the census data, the population level data, um, can can be really useful for general planning, but it will not help individuals. Um, Some cities do have something they call a special needs registry, um, Mm -hmm. where if you need additional assistance during emergencies, you can sign up for help. It's really, really hard to make those complete or accurate, um, Mm -hmm. you know, because people move around. Um, And so... And, and I think there's a good reason for um, concern about how alternative data might be used to help um, people with disabilities in emergency situations. Um, and so that's so, you know, so for example, your healthcare provider um, has information about you, nonprofits who are helping support with activities of daily living have information about you. Um, how would you want that data used? And, um, and so there's, a, there's an important role right now for the um, disability community in terms of setting up governance in advance of disasters of how personal information that's collected by um, state and local government or nonprofits uh, might be used to, um, to help you and your community or um, how you don't want it to be used.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I think that's that's a really great point, and uh, you know, often again, registries, special needs registries, it they can it can be a controversial issue. There are some circumstances and folks that I've spoken to who's, who swear by it and think that it's wonderful, and others have seen it being used in practice uh, directly after a disaster where hundreds, if not thousands, of people are on a registry and only about a dozen um, actually were uh, assisted um, to evacuate afterwards. So, kind of that false sense of reliance that because my name is on it, I'll definitely get help. Um, But then also taking into account that people with disabilities live full, well-rounded lives for the most part. And so not everyone is always going to be at home. Um, I think we kind of move away from this thought that people with disabilities are sequestered away um, in their homes and, and are not able to enjoy the community. We think about this in relation to community integration. So that means you could be at a mall, you could be at a concert, uh, at the club, uh, <laughs> whatever whatever the case might be, uh, but you could be out enjoying life in a disaster can happen at any time. Now, we're hoping you're not partying in the middle of a hurricane. Uh, but <laughs> <You know>. uh, <laughs> but if there is, a you know, some sort of, of um, uh, situation where there is, you know, very little to no warning, such as uh, an earthquake or um, even or, or tornado that has very, very little warning, and you kind of have to just uh, shelter in place wherever you are, you know, that could be anywhere within your community. And so just knowing uh, that, Whatever is put in place has to be flexible and fluid enough to, to fully comprehend and um, plan for all of those different variations.
3: Yes, and the time to do that planning is before the disaster sure, happens. Right? Right? Absolutely. That's, that's, how, that's how you maintain your um, autonomy over your own data, is by Absolutely. helping set up the governance in advance.
1: Excellent. And I kind of, uh, I have one more question that I would really like to talk about real quick, as we've talked a lot about the use of census data and why it's so important. But in the context of the 2020 census, I think a lot of us hear about the federal funding that relies on accurate census data and why it's so important for a fair and accurate cow. And then on top of that, um, how it helps communities build. So in terms of disaster planning and and disaster relief. Could you tie all that in together for us and why participating in the 2020 census is so important in this context, both for disasters and just for our everyday life?
3: Yeah, and this this comes down to um, the core purposes, roles that that census data play in our democracy. Uh, The most important one is congressional apportionment and determining how many votes your state gets in the electoral college. So just in order for, for your state to be represented at the national level, everybody needs to be counted. Um, that's absolutely essential. Um, the second one is that voting districts, of course, are drawn based on census data. Um, and so if populations are um, are not counted in, in the decennial count, then they the um their voting power will be diluted so they won't have the representation um, that that they need um, and then and then lastly in the, uh there's the distribution of federal funding um, is t- many federal programs uh have their funding formulas based on on census data and so communities that have that are undercounted are likely to receive fewer services um and and that um uh, you know that that makes uh, that has a downward spiral in terms of um, quality of life and and um, tackling some of the intersectional challenges of poverty and disability and and race and whatnot.
1: Excellent, thank you. And I saw it uh, a few days ago, and I was doing some additional research. How, for, and correct me if I'm wrong with this, but you know they use census data to determine how many fire stations a town might need based on the population. Whether they need more. Um, is that is that what your understanding is too of how potentially a community can see the direct impacts of census data?
3: Local governments use the small area census data um, mm-hmm. all the time for that type of planning, and um, and in fact, they're even um, uh, so they use it for determining where fire um, fire stations are, police stations hospitals, Starbucks, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right, like, childcare centers. Um, And that was what was so tough after Katrina is we had no idea who was back, what they needed, and what services we should put into place. Like, How do we prioritize it? We had, we were, we were really um, flying blind after the storm.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's really important uh, to emphasize that piece there where we're talking about the the money uh, being associated with this because we can plan as much as as we can, but if there are not financial resources associated with those plans, then they are just merely ideals and, and they their aspirations. It's it's purely aspirational, but it won't be practical when something actually happens if we don't have um, the resources in terms of personnel, but also in terms of, of funding, services, uh, different collaborations in terms of partnerships right. with the Community, so on and so forth. Um, if we are not working to make all of those pieces come together, then then the plans um, do not yield the same purpose that they ultimately had in the very beginning that we started out with initially. So it's it's very important to make sure that those two things are connected and streamlined throughout the entire disaster cycle. And Denise, with that, I do also want to ask: Do you have any additional statements? Anything that we have not gotten to thus far? I think Erica and I've gone through a ton of I questions. That we a lot of bases here. <laughs> But I do just want to check in with you. Is there anything else that you would like to say that we didn't get to? Um,
3: I think we I think we covered everything. You know, for me, the the two things that I think are are um, potentially most important is um, that people with disabilities are currently not well represented in the field of emergency management, and that that there needs they need to be at the table before, during, and after events to chart an equitable response and recovery. Um, and an equitable recovery is better for everyone. Um, you know, disaster recovery isn't just one person at a time. It's entire family units and communities that are part of the recovery. And if we don't include everyone, then the recovery is going to be incomplete. Um, and the second point is uh, that that data the data landscape is changing rapidly with social media and um, you know, and, and just so many different administrative data sets that we are all in, all these databases. And, um, and now is a perfect time for the disability community to help um, start providing governance on how those data can and should be used to, um, to save lives and protect privacy.
0: I love that. We talk about citizen participation all the time. And so I love that that central focus on governance, that we uh, need to have more individuals with disabilities governing the process, mm-hmm. not just casually consulted here and there, but truly involved with yes. governing the process throughout. I love it. And I want to make sure that I keep that um, <laughs> mentality with me as I, I, I continue on with the work that we're doing here at the National Disability Rights Network. Ladies, do you have any uh, final questions for Denise? To Denise,
2: I just wanted to say thank you you. Uh, The census has always been really important to me because as you mentioned, it is how we draw our voting districts and elections are my jam. But (laughs) I still think that prior to today, I probably also was taking how important the census is for granted. Mm. You mentioned earlier, if you're not counted in the census, you're invisible and being invisible is deadly. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: I will never forget that. And I think this conversation
0: proves in how many ways that is so true, so thank you. Absolutely. Often people with disabilities are invisibilized or erased from the conversation, and I think we actively try to combat that in our work on a daily basis, so this conversation just emphasizes that even more. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And the fact that you said include everyone hits home to me as I think NDRN's main effort in the census has been to count everyone, but also include everyone as well, as this is a collaborative effort to make sure that no one is invisible and that we all have an equal voice here.
3: Yes, absolutely. What a, yeah, and um, anything I can do to collaborate moving forward, uh, this is super important work. And um, I'm so glad that you asked me to be on this podcast.
1: Denise, thank you so much. This was absolutely incredible. and you were I, wonderful. Yeah, as much as I focus on census, I had no idea about a lot of stuff that we just talked about. So thank you. Very Another
0: much. huge highlight that she wanted us to point out is that registries are not the same as the census right. people. Let's be clear on that.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. Well, thank you all for joining us on the PandaPod today um, on our I series. I have
0: terrible news.
2: <gasps> Yes. Next week is our last episode. How would
0: you what? end on such a Debbie Downer note? I know, I'm sorry. Uh, okay, but here's the good news though. The good news is that although next week will be the last episode of this series on disability, disaster, and democracy, it will only be the continuation though of the PandaPod more widely because NDRN staff will continue to serve up phenomenal episodes and uh, information and content about all things related to protecting the rights, the lives, the dignity of individuals With disabilities, and we're super excited about that. All
2: right, I feel
0: better. Thank you, Justin. I'm
2: here for you, girl. Thank you, everyone. Tune in
3: next week. All right, have a good one. Bye.